Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Criminal Broads, a true crime and history podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law, on the right side of the law, women who are law adjacent, let's say. Have we covered lady lawyers on this podcast? Yes, we have. Yes, we have several of them. We do it all here. Today, we're getting into the story of Mary Vincent. Now, if you know that name, you're probably screaming along with me. If you don't know that name, don't worry. You know I'm going to hold your hand and walk you through the whole thing. And also, you have some really terrifying facts ahead of you, so I'm sorry in advance. Some really bad things happen in this episode. So I wanted a story, as we near the end of this podcast, I wanted a real rah-rah, throw your fists up in the air, like, yes, type of story. You know, a real story where there's some triumph where you just want to wildly cheer because it's fun to hear stories like that. Maybe they're not fun all the way through, but it's cathartic to hear stories like that. And I had heard this story before on a very large podcast, which I will mention later in the episode. (laughs) And if you know this story, you probably heard it from that podcast too. But as I started researching and as I read the many interviews that Mary Vincent has given over the years, I was shocked by the fact that this is not the easy, inspiring narrative that I had been told it was. This story is much messier, much more complicated, much more up and down and one step forward, two steps back than I expected it to be, than I would like it to be. We're going to get into that tension in this episode, and it's a little bit uncomfortable, I'm going to be honest, because, well, I don't want to tell you all the things I'm about to tell you in the episode, but it's messy and uncomfortable. But there still are some moments where you'll throw your fists up in the air. So it's all over the place, just like life. I hope you enjoy it. There are some graphic details in this episode. There are a couple mentions of sexual assault. And we are headed towards the great state of California in the 1970s, which is a time when you kind of want to believe it's all like fun and free and like maybe there's still some hippies hanging around vaguely um but also there were terrible things happening and let's go Mary Vincent had only been out of the hospital for five months when she was summoned to appear in the courtroom There was a man in the courtroom, and prosecutors wanted her to talk about him. So Mary showed up, her wounds on full display. She told the courtroom everything that she'd suffered, everything that he did to her. She was brave as she talked, and her voice was strong, but she couldn't look the man in the eyes. He was 51. She was 15. When she was finished talking, she got down from the witness stand. To leave, she had to walk right past the man as he sat there with his lawyer. She started walking, and the man leaned over to her, got real close to her ear, and in a voice so low that no one else could hear him, he said, I'll finish this job if it takes me the rest of my life. 
Mary Vincent was born in 1963, and by the time her mother was finished having children, Mary would have six siblings. Mary's parents had met in the Philippines. Her mom was from there, and her dad had been stationed there as an airman for the U.S. Air Force. But now the Vincents lived in America's most notorious city, Las Vegas. There, Mary's parents both worked in the gambling biz. Her dad repaired gambling machines, and her mom was a dealer at a casino. As a kid, Mary loved her hobbies. She swam, she did gymnastics, she sewed through pottery, she made macrame hangers for her mom's plants, and she danced. She was so good at dance that she was hoping to make a real career of it. Her dance instructor had told her that she could get a job at the Lido de Paris, a fancy Vegas cabaret, and Mary had plans to dance there and then move on to cabarets in Hawaii and Australia. She had it all planned out. But, as a teenager, Mary was starting to struggle. She didn't like school, and she had fallen in with a group of friends that her guidance counselor thought were bad news. She was starting to skip class more and more, and she was getting into big arguments with her strict dad about things like wearing makeup. Apparently, her dad had quite the temper, because Mary says that one day, one of her sisters told her that their dad had a migraine and was coming home all mad at Mary for something she'd done. You'd better run, said her sister. So Mary did. For most of the summer of 1978, Mary was a runaway, or at least a quasi-runaway. Sometimes she'd live with her grandfather and then come back home and then run away again. Sometimes she'd stay with an uncle. For a while, she lived with a boyfriend in Sausalito, California. But that relationship ended abruptly when her boyfriend got arrested on charges of raping a high school girl. At that, Mary, who was also a high school girl, left him. When she wasn't crashing with family members, she'd find unlocked cars and sleep inside them. Sometimes she slept behind garbage cans. That September, she decided to go back to her grandfather's house. Maybe she was starting to miss home, or at least starting to miss stability. She was up north, near Berkeley, but she needed to go south to where her grandfather lived. And so on September 29th, she decided to hitchhike. It was the 70s. Everyone was doing it. She didn't think it was a big deal. And just like that, someone pulled up and offered her a ride. The driver was a middle-aged guy, balding and paunchy and wearing a blue jumpsuit, driving a blue van. He seemed pretty old to her. She figured he was old enough to be safe. He told her he'd drop her off in Los Angeles. She opened the door of his van and climbed inside. Let's take a quick break to hear from today's sponsor, Dame. There is nothing like a dame, nothing in the world. Name that musical. Email me, criminalbrowsatgmail.com if you know what I'm talking about. Okay. As we've discussed on this show before, my lovely listeners, our relationships should add value to our lives. And you know one way to add value to your relationship and your life? Thoughtfully designed toys for the bedroom. If you would like to deepen your connection with your partner, check out Dame Products, a woman-owned company making the next generation of toys for intimacy. It was founded by a sex educator and an engineering whiz, and it develops all its products with real 
actual human beings in mind. Their mission is to make adding toys to the bedroom less intimidating and more accessible. If you're unsure of what you're looking for, you can take their product quiz for product suggestions tailored just to you and your partner, if you have a partner in mind. So, if you're intrigued, go to dameproducts.com slash criminalbroads today for 15% off site-wide. Again, go to dameproducts.com slash criminalbroads today for 15% off site-wide. The man who picked up 15-year-old Mary Vincent that day was named Lawrence Singleton. He went by Larry. He was 51. He was an alcoholic who worked for the Merchant Marines and had spent most of his working life on the high seas. He had several blemishes on his record, some intoxication charges, and a charge called contributing to the delinquency of a minor. That was a vague charge that meant he had encouraged a young person to do something illegal. Maybe it was something involving drinking or drugs. Maybe it was something involving sex. By the time he picked up Mary, his personal life was in shambles. He'd been divorced twice, had a huge blow-up fight with his teen daughter earlier that summer. Every time he got drunk, his awful temper flared up. He hated women. He probably wouldn't say it. But later, most of the professionals who worked with him noted it. He absolutely hated women. And he couldn't stay away from the booze. It was a lethal combination. And now, here was this sweet young girl climbing into his van. Larry told Mary that he was actually heading to Reno, Nevada, but no worries, he'd head an extra 472.9 miles south and drop her off in L.A., This insane detour didn't raise any red flags for Mary. Maybe she didn't realize just how much of a detour it actually was. One thing did raise a red flag for her, though. When she lit a cigarette and sneezed at the smoke, she suddenly felt Larry's hand on the back of her neck. Let's see if you're sick, he said, and tried to pull her towards him. She wriggled away from his hand and scooted closer to the passenger door. She was annoyed at him, but not worried enough to leave. She wasn't even worried enough to leave when he started swigging from a milk carton full of alcohol. Instead, she fell asleep. When she woke, she realized that something wasn't right. The signs flashing past them on the highway weren't signs pointing towards L.A. They were pointing towards Nevada. Mary realized that they were driving the wrong way. She felt around in the van, in the darkness, and her fingers closed around a stick— perfect. She grabbed it, pointed it at Larry like a sword, and said, I can take care of myself. Turn around now. And Larry listened. He turned the van around. He seemed truly apologetic. I'm just an honest man who made an honest mistake, he said. I'm not going to hurt you. But he wasn't an honest man, and he hadn't made an honest mistake. And he was going to hurt her. The 
The sun was setting when Larry jerked the steering wheel to one side and drove off the highway down a creepy, deserted little road that went to the bottom of a canyon. He had to use the bathroom, he said. Mary had to use the bathroom, too. And so when they stopped, she hopped out of the van, found a secluded spot, and did her business. She was done and tying one of her shoes when she felt a huge blow land on her back and then another one on the back of her head. It was Larry. He grabbed her, pushed her into the back of his van, and began tying her wrists. Don't scream or I'll kill you, he said. He raped her. Then he got back into the driver's seat, completely naked, and drove like a madman through the empty canyon. He stopped the van again. He cut her hands free and told her he'd let her go if she obeyed him, and then gave her a cup of alcohol. Drink it or I'll kill you, he said. She drank it. She had to. He raped her a second time. She fainted. While Mary was passed out, Larry made a decision that would change the course of Mary's life more than anything else would. He must have decided that he needed to do away with this girl, to dispose of the evidence of his crime. He figured that Mary would die out there in the canyon if he just dumped her off somewhere. But there was one problem. If authorities found her body, she'd be identified by that most human of identification methods, the prints on the tips of her fingers. And so, when Mary woke up, Larry told her to get out of his van and lie down on the edge of the road. She obeyed him. He rustled around in the van, looking for something. And then he pulled out an axe and walked towards her. He grabbed her left hand and roared, You want to be free? I'll set you free. As Mary screamed harder than she'd ever screamed before, the axe came down on her left hand and then her right hand. In that moment, she thought to herself that it would be easier if she could just die. Then Larry pushed her over the edge of a cliff, scrambled down after her, stuffed her into a concrete drainage pipe, and left. Bleeding. In shock, in agony, Mary lay there. She couldn't believe that she was still conscious. She felt an overwhelming desire to go to sleep. But she stayed awake, feeling every sensation in her body, and she felt, overwhelmingly, that she wasn't alone. Later, she would describe the supernatural experience I felt someone there with me, she said, a presence who wanted me to survive. A voice told me to get up and get help, or someone else would die. And so she got up. She crawled almost two miles out of the canyon and toward the highway. She was completely naked, and as she walked, she held her arms high overhead to slow the bleeding and to keep the muscles in her arms from falling out. The first car that saw her must have thought they'd seen a ghost. That car turned around and sped away in terror. The second car that saw her was driven by 23-year-old Dennis Bohr and his wife. Suddenly, Dennis saw the most terrible thing he'd ever seen in his life, a naked girl covered in blood and dirt, holding her arms high in the air, missing both of her hands. 
he pulled to a stop and lifted the girl into the passenger seat. She wasn't crying, he said later. She was just moaning. The three of them drove to the hospital as fast as they could, and before long, Mary Vincent's story was front-page news, and the entire state of California reeled. The girl who's lying in that hospital is a human being, said one local mechanic. When you hunt animals, you treat them with more respect than with which she was treated. A year later, Dennis Bohr and his wife were planning to leave California. They were so traumatized by the rescue that Dennis had started carrying a gun wherever he went, while his wife refused to spend the night alone. There are just too many people here, Dennis told a journalist. That brings the odds up on somebody losing their mind. I get in my moods and I think of it. I'm always on the lookout now. Ten days after Mary was rescued, Larry Singleton was arrested in Nevada. In the hospital, Mary would crawl out of her bed in the middle of the night, still fast asleep, and run down the hallways, moaning. When the night nurse would tap her on the shoulder and try to wake her up, Mary would scream in terror. But in the daytime, she was strong. She was given one prosthetic hand, and she learned how to use it surprisingly fast— Journalists and television cameras swarmed all over her, and she gave some chipper interviews where she proudly listed all the things she could do with her new hand. She could make sandwiches, she could bake a pie, she could pour Coca-Cola into glasses. But her old skills from her previous life were gone, including her dream of being a dancer. She later told a journalist that in order to save her right arm, doctors had to remove a piece of her leg. There would be no dancing at cabarets for her. Five months after Mary left the hospital, she had to appear in court to testify against Larry. He was facing a black cloud of charges. Rape, sodomy, oral copulation, kidnapping, mayhem, a charge that includes intentional maiming of another person, and attempted murder. In Larry's mind, though, he was the victim. He had a whole story worked out. Mary was a tough, street-smart, pot-addled runaway who got into his van and said, if you don't take me to Los Angeles, I am going to maim you and then accuse you of rape. Yes, Larry Singleton, the man who maimed and raped Mary Vincent, told police that Mary Vincent had threatened to maim him. He said that he was so terrified of being accused of rape that of course he did whatever that scary 15-year-old girl had told him to do. Oh, and the whole bit about both of her arms being chopped off? Well, there were two other hitchhikers lurking around, and Mary had sex with both of them. And so, well, they probably attacked her and chopped off her arms and all. The guy with the axe certainly hadn't been poor, innocent Larry, who was the true victim here. In court, Mary gathered all her courage and mounted the witness stand and told the courtroom everything that Larry had done to her. It was bravery worthy of an adult, but sometimes she sounded just like a child. When she was asked to describe the rape, she said, I heard it. I heard it. 
Then, as she left the courtroom, Larry leaned towards her with that horrible threat, I'll finish this job if it takes me the rest of my life. At that, Mary ran out of the courtroom. Those words would ricochet around her mind for the next two decades. Larry was found guilty and sentenced to 14 years in prison. Mary went home to live with her parents. Back in Vegas, she went to a school for handicapped kids and started going to therapy. But as she tried to heal, her family began to pull apart at the seams. Her dad was buying guns and talking loudly about how he was going to kill Larry Singleton. Her parents were fighting and fighting. Eventually, they'd get divorced. Mary herself was starting to return to her old wild ways, traumatized by the memories that she was revisiting in therapy. And her parents just weren't much help with any of it. They couldn't handle it, she told a journalist later. They took it harder than me. I'm telling them, I need you, but they couldn't do it. They were more interested in what they felt about what happened to me than what I felt. And Mary's friends weren't that much better. They couldn't deal with what had happened to her either. I felt like a public spectacle, she said. There's a certain narrative we like in our true crime stories. We like a narrative where the victim or the victim's family transforms, like a phoenix rising from the ashes into a survivor. We like stories of fighters, of people overcoming terrible things, and we need these stories to be fairly neat. After the blood and guts of the crime, we like to see our bad guys locked up, and we want the healing to begin. We want the healing to begin right away. Otherwise, What's the point? What was all that horror for? For a while, Mary tried to fit into this narrative. She visited high schools and tried to craft an inspiring message. Don't hitchhike. Don't run away from home. You never know what sorts of bad people are out there. She gave these speeches dutifully until one day, a boy in the audience yelled, You deserved to get your hands cut off! She tried to attend groups designed for victims to share their pain, but she held her own pain so tightly inside of her that she looked normal on the outside, and people seemed to think that she was doing just fine. In therapy, psychologists tried to get her to empathize more with what her family members were going through. She found the whole process crazy-making. It was the first time they had experienced someone like me, she said of therapy. After a while, I just stopped going. Right after her attack, Mary had lived in the intense glare of the media spotlight. People around the country had raised money for her new arms and held bake sales to support her. But now the news cycle had moved on, and the speaking tour didn't pan out, and the victims' groups weren't working. And so what was she to do? She tried to scrape by. Money was always a problem. She got $13,000 from the California Victims Fund, but that didn't last forever. In a civil suit, she was awarded $2.5 million from Larry Singleton, but he didn't have a cent to pay her. Yes, money was a problem, and so were men. None of the men she dated had the resources to deal with the depth and intensity of her pain. I don't think too highly of them anymore, she told a journalist. They can't cope with the hurt that goes on inside me or any other victim. Still, One glorious thing came out of a relationship she had in her mid-twenties. 
she gave birth to a son, Luke. His name meant light. She had always wanted to be a mother, and now she was. When I became a mother, she said, I really had something big to live for. Her relationship with Luke's father didn't last, but by 1987, she was in a new relationship and living in Washington State. She was engaged. And on her wedding day, a guest walked up to her and told her the worst news in the world. Larry Singleton was free. In prison, when Larry Singleton spoke to the psychiatrist, he often referred to Mary as the little bitch. Now he was out on parole. He had served only eight years of his 14-year sentence, and he had gotten out early because of, quote, good behavior. He was out on parole, except that nobody in California, not a single town or city, would have him. The public outrage over his release was so huge that he had to spend his year of parole living in a trailer on the grounds of San Quentin Prison. People hadn't forgotten for a second what he'd done to Mary, and they were certainly not going to have him as a neighbor. Larry himself was deeply offended over this. He told a journalist that this sort of vengeance wasn't the America he knew. Back in Washington state, Mary's new husband couldn't deal with the news that his wife's attacker was practically free. He also couldn't deal with the renewed attention that Mary was getting. Now that Larry was out on parole, she was again swamped with interview requests, with talk of book and TV deals. She was also pregnant, and so her husband stayed until she gave birth to their son, Alan, whose name means precious. But after that, he left her. As Mary had told that journalist a few years earlier, most men couldn't cope with her hurt, including her own husband. Of course, the news of Larry's parole made Mary remember all too vividly his last words to her, I'll finish this job if it takes me the rest of my life. She started hiring bodyguards, and she moved around as much as possible so that Larry wouldn't be able to find her. In the meantime, the book deals crashed, the movie deals burned, and Mary eventually had to go on welfare. She borrowed too much money to make a down payment on a house, and the house got repossessed just a few months later. Things got so bad that she and her two boys spent one winter living in an abandoned gas station. She stopped eating. Her weight plummeted. Her prosthetic arms rusted. She couldn't afford to fix them. In the meantime, Larry was continuing the narrative that he was the victim. In fact, he was now trying to sue Mary Vincent for kidnapping him. He claimed that Mary had been smoking PCP in his van, had used a stick to threaten him and force him to drive her to Los Angeles, and that she and those magical, mystical two other male hitchhikers had stolen money from him. He argued that Mary was guilty of the crime of forcible kidnap for the purpose of robbery. He told the press that not only was he the victim of kidnapping, but he was also the victim of a media smear campaign. I wouldn't be a normal human being if I didn't work myself into a rage when I think of how I was treated in the courts and also in the media, he said. I have spent 10 years of my life in prison, each day being taunted and threatened. He hadn't wanted to sue Mary. He held no bitterness in his heart against her, even though she had kidnapped him and threatened him with a stick. 
He told that journalist that before he filed the complaint against her, he felt like throwing up and he'd had some trouble sleeping. No, he hadn't wanted to sue her because he was such a loving person, but he had to. He had to sue her in order for the truth to come out. As every sane person in the state of California rolled their eyes harder than they'd ever been rolled before, Mary was also talking to the press. After all, people wanted to know how she felt now that Larry was out. But anyone hoping that she'd give the media a rousing soundbite about how she'd never be afraid of Larry Singleton ever again was sorely disappointed. The article, which came out in People magazine, made it painfully clear that Mary's life had been ruined by the attack and that there was no chipper message to be exhumed from the wreckage. Let's just go ahead and read an entire paragraph from the article. Consumed by anger, haunted by cold sweat dreams in which the accident, as she calls it, spins itself out in terrible detail, she has been crippled by a sense of defeat. She considered suicide, she said, but rejected the idea because I'd chicken out and a part of me would feel like I can't even do that right. She could talk haltingly about the psychic aftershocks of her experience, but could not offer any tidy morals. Although she said her son, now 18 months, has given her a reason to live, her spirit seems to have been destroyed. I'll never get over this, she said. By the early 1990s, Mary was dating her bodyguard, a bare-knuckle fighter named Bob who bred gigantic dogs. She was having nightmares so violent that she had broken bones, dislocated her shoulder, and cracked ribs, all in her sleep. Larry was living in Tampa, Florida, where he grew up. At one point, someone set off a bomb near his house. California didn't want him, but Florida wasn't happy to have him either. Larry's life in Florida was far from idyllic. He was arrested several times for shoplifting. In 1997, he attempted suicide, and he did a stint in a psychiatric hospital because of it. Nine days after Larry was released from the hospital, a local painter came by his house to paint it. Larry had hired this painter earlier, and as the man walked inside, he heard someone say, in a low voice, Help! The painter looked into the living room and saw something that he'd never forget. Larry was standing by his couch, naked and covered in blood. There was a woman slumped on the couch. The painter ran outside and looked through a window before telephoning for help. He saw Larry raise his arm and bring it crashing down on the woman again and again. He heard the sound of bones being crushed. He later compared it to chicken bones breaking. The woman on the couch was Roxanne Hayes, a sex worker and a mother of three. She'd gone to Larry's house on February 19, 1997, to make a little money, and she never left. Her seventh-grade daughter had to identify her body at the morgue. Roxanne struggled with addiction and homelessness, but she was the kind of woman who'd crawl into dumpsters to save stray kittens, as her boyfriend told a journalist. She took her kids to the state fair and the YMCA, and she told them that they could be whatever they wanted to be. 
Her boyfriend told the journalist that he thought Roxanne would have forgiven Larry for what he did to her. She would have forgiven him for everything, that is, except for the fact that he took her away from her children. In court, Larry pulled out his well-worn victim card. He claimed that Roxanne had tried to steal his wallet and then had picked up one of his knives and threatened to decapitate him. So of course he had to stop her, and so when he tried to take the knife from her, she jerked her hand down and away from him, and she accidentally stabbed herself. She accidentally stabbed herself seven times. Then, Larry said, she begged him to hold her. So he sobbed and stroked her face as she took her last breath. It was beautiful. Nobody believed Larry Singleton's absurd, repugnant, pathetic, offensive story for a single second. Mary Vincent, for one, knew that he was lying through his teeth. The state of Florida flew her down for the trial, where she sat in the courtroom and said, I was attacked, I was raped, and my hands were cut off. He left me to die. And at that, she raised one of her prosthetic arms and pointed it straight at Larry. He was sentenced to death. The whole experience shook Mary to her core. She wept for Roxanne Hayes, obsessed over her final moments. In the courtroom, the medical examiner had testified that Roxanne would have been conscious for four or five minutes after being stabbed in the heart. Mary's nightmares came back. She'd dream about her own attack, and then she'd dream about horrible things happening to other people. And yet... The silver lining to the whole horror was that Larry was once again behind bars. He was no longer out there, roaming around, looking for mayhem. So, slowly, Mary found herself able to function in a way she hadn't for years. She found herself craving sunlight, and so she moved from Washington State down to Orange County, California, where she got a job as a clerk at the district attorney's office. There, she met a handsome investigator named Tom Wilson. Their first date started at brunch and ended with dinner. That night, she couldn't sleep, so she picked up a pencil with her prosthetic hands and drew a self-portrait for him. This would be the start of a new identity for her, Mary Vincent, the artist. She and Tom got married in 1999, and she wore her wedding ring on a chain around her neck. It was a fairy tale ending for her, she told the press. Tom encouraged her to look into victims' rights again, and with his support, she did. She launched the Mary Vincent Foundation, hoping that it would help victims of violent crime. When she gave a speech at the opening of the foundation, several hundred people came to hear her speak. They wept along with her as she told the story of her attack on stage. The foundation didn't last, though. After a year or so, there were no more news articles about it. Today, a report on U.S. nonprofits says that the Mary Vincent Foundation had their exempt status automatically revoked by the IRS for failure to file certain forms for three consecutive years. What exactly happened with the foundation is not public knowledge, but here's a guess. The narrative of the survivor who turns her trauma into a movement, who starts the foundation and raises millions and ends up changing the world, is an alluring narrative. But for many, that narrative is just 
too heavy to bear. Still, it was impossible to deny that what Mary Vincent was becoming as the years passed by was something of a badass. Sure, the million-dollar book deal never panned out. She and Tom divorced, and she moved back to Washington State with her sons, where she lived on disability and welfare. But her drawing was becoming more and more of a force in her life. She drew family portraits on commission, but when she was working just for herself, she drew female action figures, intense, dangerous, sexy pinup types with weapons in their hands. It was harder to be brave at night, as it often is. Mary had trouble falling asleep, and she could never stay asleep for very long. Every day I pray to God to make a space I can breathe in, she told a journalist, and every day God gives it to me. In that space, she did what she could, and she did it well. She tinkered with her cheap prosthetic arms, using bits and pieces from stereo systems and old refrigerators, and she made them better so that her fingers could turn in any direction. She figured out how to bowl. She made herself a prosthetic hand just for the bowling alley. And she became something of a pool shark, so good at the game that her most competitive friends refused to play with her. She got herself a 21-year-old boyfriend. She never used Larry Singleton's name. As the 2000s crept on, Mary would occasionally resurface for the purpose of victims' rights, that movement that she always seemed to have such an uneasy time with. In 2009, she gave a speech as part of National Crime Victims' Rights Weeks, and she showed up looking like a space-age Wonder Woman with her black tank top and her metal arms, her long, dark hair flowing down her back. Twenty years earlier, she'd told a journalist that she'd never get over the attack. And now she added on to that message. I will never get over being attacked. I wake up every morning with a constant reminder, she said, holding up her arms. But I can move past it. Seven years later, she had fallen back into obscurity when a podcast that was just starting to get big covered her story. The podcast, My Favorite Murder, featured the tale of Mary Vincent on their 18th episode. One of the hosts had seen Mary in a 2009 episode of I Survived. Today, the podcast gets over 35 million downloads a month, and the Mary Vincent episode is their most popular episode of all time. Mary has become something of a hero to the fans of the podcast who call themselves murderinos. You can go on Etsy and buy a white mug with a black cross on it for $17.29 that reads, Mary Vincent, our Lord and Savior. Finally, a Hollywood ending, right? A whole new generation gets to hear the inspiring story of Mary Vincent and she becomes truly famous. In the movie version of this story, a movie that has inexplicably never been made even though we're on our, what, fourth or fifth retelling of the Ted Bundy story? In the movie version of this story, Mary Vincent would join the hosts of My Favorite Murder on stage and say, thank you for keeping my story alive, and say, I didn't just survive, I thrived, and everyone would cry, and she'd go on Oprah and then write that best-selling memoir, and everyone could walk away from the story with a tidy ending, an ending inspirational enough to put on an Etsy mug. But 
Hollywood didn't write Mary's story. Mary has never joined the hosts of My Favorite Murder on stage or gone on Oprah or written her book. I wasn't able to find a single quote from her since 2009. In one of the last interviews that she did, she talks about her finances and mentions that she's in debt and looking for a job. Mary Vincent, the famous survivor, looking for a job. Her story resists the happily and wealthily ever after ending that we crave from crime. We'd like to tell ourselves that there are certain things nobody can take from us, right? Nobody can take our dignity, our courage, our indomitable spirits. But Larry Singleton took a whole hell of a lot from the world. He took innocence from Mary Vincent and from Roxanne Hayes' seventh-grade daughter who had to identify her mother's broken body in the morgue. He took Mary's ability to sleep soundly for the rest of her life. He took her career as a dancer. He took a mother away from Roxanne's three children. He didn't ultimately take Mary Vincent's indomitable spirit, but he came close closer than it is comfortable to admit. Today, the laws in California are tougher because of Larry. If he committed his crime against Mary Vincent now, he would be given a much longer sentence. He may never have had the chance to attack again. Thankfully, he is no longer around to test this theory. He died of cancer in a prison hospital just after Christmas of 2001. Nobody mourned him. His obituary headline gave him the title of Despised Rapist. When Mary Vincent does get on stage to talk about crime, her message is always a little bit vague. She says things like, We all need to stop long enough to care. We need to stop the violence. She says, We all must join together to stop this kind of thing. She says, I don't want anything this bad to happen to anyone else. She means what she's saying, of course. But there's a kind of tragedy to these simplistic statements. We all must join together to stop this kind of thing. But what could have stopped Larry Singleton, really? As one journalist put it, what happened to Mary was the result of someone's random, violent urge. It was senseless. And that's the tragedy of her life, the thing she has to fight like hell to overcome, that she will always be fighting to overcome. She tries to spin meaning from what happened to her, but it's like spinning gold from straw. Back in 1978, that same journalist watched Mary get coached through a press conference, and the journalist felt uncomfortable watching the spectacle that she had become. There was the sickening feeling that the most tragic experience in young Mary Vincent's life had, in some perverse twist, become a macabre highlight, the journalist wrote. She was news, and it seemed unfair. And that is the story of Mary Vincent. Nobody can deny that she is a survivor, 
Nobody can deny that what she overcame was incredible, like freaking scaling Mount Everest with the blindfold on and no oxygen. But I thought it was fascinating and heartbreaking that her narrative was not this tidy arc that we all want. Just like what happened to me was terrible. But then like every year that went by, I got stronger and now I'm here. It's really a story of the circular and back and forth and chaotic nature of healing, I think. And I think that it's important to see a story like that because we do love an inspiring narrative. I mean, I think I've had plenty of inspiring narratives on this year podcast and it feels so good. It feels so right. But maybe that's a bit too much of a burden to put on survivors. I don't know. It feels like perhaps the expectation from us, the public, for people to have these glow ups as Gen Z says. Does Gen Z say that? Who says glow ups? <laughs> Our expectation on people to have these glow ups is perhaps not fair. All right, everyone, thank you as always for listening, for your sensitive and intelligent responses to these episodes. You can go to Instagram.com slash Criminal Broads to see photos of Mary Vincent from her sweet, precious photos when she was only 15 to her looking like a real modern-day Wonder Woman in her black tank top. And I'd also like to thank this week's patrons, Jenna Kay, Molly B., my squad, my squad for this week. Thank you for supporting the podcast. Anyone else who wants to become a patron for the last weeks of Criminal Broads, go to patreon.com slash criminalbroads to support the podcast. Of course, you can always leave a review. You know the drill. You know how to support the podcast. I will see you back here next week for a story where we are going to go into a little place called prison. And we are going to stay there for a really long time. Are you ready? Buckle your seatbelts. Check your engine. Get your oil tested or whatever we do with oil in cars. And I will see you back here next week. Have a good one. Bye. Maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. Loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.